WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's OTM correspondent Michael Oenger. I'll be filling in for Brooke on Friday's episode. But first, for this week's Pod Extra, we decided to take a cue from Discovery Channel because it's Shark Week. And you know what that means. The Mako Shark. The ocean's king of speed. Take it off! A vicious hunter. Look at the size of the... This year's programs boast flashy titles like Stranger Sharks, Air Jaws, Great White Serial Killer, Rise of the Monster Hammerheads, featuring sharks writhing through murky water, jaws clenched on dead fish bait, snapping at divers. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution. Of course, sharks first splashed into Hollywood and widespread infamy with the 1975 blockbuster Jaws. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It's the type of horror film that sticks with you, especially when you go for a little swim at the beach and you're sort of floating there, looking out over the waves. You start to think to yourself, what's out there? What's underneath me? That video was captured just last weekend on the New York coast. According to experts, there's been a slight rise in shark sightings and incidents over the last three decades. Experts are warning that sharks will be out and about in force along both the east and west coast over the July 4th weekend. But even as these predators shut down beaches and send local news crews into a frenzy, many marine biologists have waged a counter-PR campaign for sharks, arguing that popular media have far overstated their danger. Chris Pepin-Neff is a senior lecturer at the University of Sydney and author of the book Flaws, Shark Bites and Emotional Public Policymaking. He says that a half a century before Jaws, Sharks first received their brutal reputation from a handful of researchers, including Horace Mazet, a writer and big game hunter. Horace Mazet from New York writes these books about sharks in the Great Barrier Reef, and he is convinced that 
sharks get shark rabies and sharks get a taste for human flesh. And so he starts writing letters to an Australian shark researcher named Victor Copelson, who is writing to people to contemplate shark behavior. And Mazette, he tells Victor Copelson, you have to convince people that sharks attack people. So Victor Copelson writes the authoritative journal article of its day in the Australian Medical Journal, stating that the evidence that sharks attack is complete. And that changes the paradigm. And shark attack becomes much more prominent in the literature. So is the idea that prior to this discourse, people weren't afraid of sharks? Like there just wasn't a kind of a popular imagination of the menacing shark at the beach? That's exactly right, because beachgoing was seen very differently. In a lot of communities, there were propriety laws in the 1800s that sort of kept people in onesies. What you end up with is a total change in the culture post-1911, 1912. The laws start changing, become more progressive, more liberal. People start swimming. But you said there's a couple other sort of human factors that changed how we came to perceive sharks. And one of them had to do with shark bites and what happened to people after they were bitten. Sharks' teeth are really bacteria-laden and create real problems for humans when we get bitten. So most people who were bitten by sharks in the 20s and 30s really received very minor bites, but died as a result of it from sepsis or from some other bacteria-based infection. And so the assumption was man dies from shark bite, you know, a ginormous hulk of flesh was removed from their body when it may have been an actual infection from a smaller bite that took their life. That's correct. That's that's predominantly what happened. And speaking of human behavior, there were also different kind of environmental factors that led to an increase of interactions with sharks as well. Yeah. As communities got developed, let's use New Jersey, 1916 as the example, right? They set up resorts and they didn't have the sewage capability to manage it without flushing the sewage out into the open ocean. And that's what happened in lots of areas. And so you had construction waste, you had sewage that was flowing, and that would attract bull sharks, other sharks, other bait fish that sharks follow to come into shore. So we're going into the water, the sewage is going into the water, and the sharks are coming into the shore. And the combination of those three things is a fundamental shift in the dynamic between humans and sharks. And you mentioned 1916 in New Jersey. There was actually something remembered as the New Jersey massacre on the Jersey Shore. And this was like an early media frenzy that did a lot to kickstart the public perception of sharks. Four people died. One person was injured. Newspapers reported there was a man-eating shark. And I, I saw a picture of it. I mean, that is like the biggest, baddest thing I'm sure many people had seen. <laughs> and... It was said that it was a single malicious shark, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, that was on a, a killing frenzy. There's one researcher who notes, and I think correctly, that it's kind of the Titanic of shark attack cases. Because previously, you've got this belief that sharks don't bite north of the Caribbean, that jaws aren't strong enough. Now you've got four fatalities. You've got a shark in a sort of in a river inlet going up the Jersey Shore, and 
President Woodrow Wilson is paying attention to the concerns of high-dollar donors who are based on the Jersey Shore who are living at this resort. And so Woodrow Wilson has shark attacks put on the war cabinet agenda and deploys the Coast Guard to go assist in finding the shark. Were they successful in tracking the shark down? There was a shark that was caught and killed, and there were remains that were found in the shark. So it was believed that this was the shark. Basically, after this occurred, the shark bite stopped. So everyone thought the problem was solved. It's fascinating to me that the area that I'm speaking to you from, the New York, New Jersey area, is so crucial to the origin of our modern perceptions around sharks because there have been shark sightings on New York beaches this summer. According to the Australian Shark Incident Database, shark bites have actually been on the rise over the past four decades. So what do you think are some explanations for this? Population is on the rise. The population of people who use the ocean is on the rise. The amount of time we spend in the ocean is on the rise. The number of things we do on the ocean is on the rise. We go to more areas to go in the water. We pick more remote areas. Surfers are in search of the barren beach, the places that would be most opportunistic to sharks. And you've got to think about sharks as these opportunistic apex predators. We're a big thing where we don't belong, and that makes us a target. And just to drill down on the language a little bit, do all of the bites that have been reported, do those count as attacks? Like, how should we make sense of those two words? Usually shark bites count as shark attacks, which is unfair because I did a study with Bob Huter, who used to run the Moat Marine Lab, and what we found is that in a government report, about 38% of reported shark attacks had no injury. So the narrative is much more complicated, whether it's a surf ski that gets bitten or a surfboard that gets bitten or someone knocked off a boogie board or something, all of this is usually getting counted as shark attack. And what we find is that that's not actually an accurate reflection of what's going on in the water. A recent article in Hellgate, which is a local New York online publication, noted that there is a distinct hysteria associated with a shark attack that isn't representative of the likelihood of the threat. For instance, it's very arresting to see shark attack in a headline or like on TV, see a deserted beach. But the odds of being attacked by a shark are like one in 3.7 million. But the chances of dying in a car crash, writes Hellgate, are around one in 101. You know, there's a reason why they say, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, shark bites sell. Like shark attack is a visceral concept. We have an idea of it. We know what sharks look like. We know what a shark bite is. And we know that a shark attack would be a terrible thing to have happen to someone. And that idea that we have in our head really feels like it comes from one particular (laughs) moment in media history. Do you want to just say it? Jaws. Yes. Which is an awesome movie. I mean, I don't want to dunk on Jaws as a film. But you think that it's had a sort of adverse effect on how we think about sharks. Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws, said it had an adverse effect on sharks. He said, I never should have written it. And it was pure fiction, right? He wasn't a shark expert. 
He wasn't a shark expert, but he had read, this is another New York connection, he had read about a large shark that was caught off the coast of Montauk, and he sort of got the idea in his head, what if the shark that was caught off Montauk terrorized the community off that beach, and that was what precipitated the writing of the novel Jaws? What's your experience when you watch this 1975 film directed by Steven Spielberg? I love Jaws. Who doesn't like a murder mystery whodunit starring a killer fish? You know, like that's got all the elements you want. <laughs> what do you think about the Sharknado series? I think Sharknado actually has done a ton of good because... Really? It, yeah, because sharks flying through tornadoes is not a normal meteorological event. Yes. So the fact that people can distinguish between normal shark behavior, like... Um, sharks is shark bites is mistaken identity, right? You look like a seal. I think the movie characterization of sharks as sort of characters has helped to distinguish between actual real shark behavior and movie monsters. The problem with Jaws was that people thought that it was a movie monster that was a real shark, and that that could really happen. You alluded to Woodrow Wilson calling out the New Jersey shark massacre and drawing attention to it and helping shape the public perception around sharks. There seems to be this kind of funny part of American presidential history where American politicians have looked to sharks to prove their own masculinity. Tell me a little bit about how JFK looked to sharks. JFK is on this boat, PT-109, in World War II. And there are stories about how PT-109 crashes. And JFK then has to swim through shark-infested waters to survive. And that story builds a legacy and a sort of iconic picture of JFK as having the character and the strength of purpose because sharks are depicted as so menacing. If JFK had swum through dolphin-infested waters, that would not be a story. <laughs> it, would be a, it would be a different story, that's for sure. It would be a Disney story. <laughs> but JFK wasn't the only president to sort of use the shark as a foil for their own masculinity. Exactly. FDR uses that as a foil in 1938 in a fight with a 235-pound shark um, <laughs> that he spent 90 minutes reeling in and brings aboard the ship and takes a picture of the shark hanging by its business on the boat. And that's a picture of strength for FDR. That's, that's an important narrative about masculinity that is being conveyed. Nixon also sort of flirted with the imagery of sharks. Donald Trump in 2018 uh, gave a speech in which he mentioned sharks. I'm not a big fan of sharks. I don't know how many votes am I going to lose. I have people calling me up, sir, we want to have a fun to save the shark. It's called Save the Shark. I say, no, thank you. I have other things I can contribute to. Anyone who helps a shark is no friend of mine, or the only good shark is a dead shark kind of thing. <laughs> You've been on the front lines of a movement to change how people in the media and other researchers talk about interactions between humans and sharks. I've certainly seen some coverage of this kind of re-examination of the term shark attack. There was a piece last year in the New York Times. Stephen Colbert quoted you. The Global Shark Attack File changed its name to the Global Shark Accident File. The Australian Shark Attack File also changed its name to the Australian Shark Incident File. 
But not everyone has been so receptive to this kind of re-examination. For instance, Tucker Carlson wasn't a big fan. Officials are referring to shark attacks as, or quoting now, negative interactions, like when a great white chews off your leg, it's a negative interaction. One University of Sydney researcher said the move is appropriate because most shark attacks are more like small bites than actual attacks. So how to assess this? Well, Dave Portnoy is most famous for starting the sports site. According to him, you're, you're like an, a social justice warrior who's one incident in a larger culture war of the left trying to change every little bit about how we speak. So I'd say to Tucker, I did a study and found that 66% of people thought shark attack was overhyped. So the public doesn't want it. It's not an accurate reflection of what's going on. And so we should change the language to something closer to shark encounters when there's no injury and shark bite when there is an injury. It is not my position that shark attacks should be retired completely. It is just that unless you know the intent of the shark, which is awfully hard to know, you shouldn't be calling it a shark attack. Can you give me some examples of like counterproductive public policy responses that are rooted in ignorance of sharks? The New Jersey shark fishery was started in the 60s because of the 1916 shark bites. So you ended up with having fisheries policy that was directed by shark bite policy. And the idea was if you see a shark, kill it? Yes. Any dead shark is a good shark. And that becomes a public policy of the United States. After Jaws, sharks are seen as waste fish, and they increase shark tournaments where you go and have big game hunting and, again, building on the machismo sort of thing of going and conquering the ocean, catch and kill as many sharks as you can, as often as you can. And there are real stakes here because sharks are crucial to the health of our oceans, and their population has decreased by about 70% since the 1970s largely from overfishing and human destruction of their environment. If we don't reassess our relationship to sharks and how we talk and write about them, what do you fear will happen? If you start killing apex predators in marine ecosystems, really bad things happen. Any marine scientist will tell you that eliminating the top of the food chain creates more problems, not less problems. So... There was an incident where they were overfishing for white sharks off Durban, South Africa, and dusky sharks moved in. Well, dusky sharks have a bite radius that is harder than a white shark. So when they introduced people into those scenarios and there ended up being dusky shark bites on humans, they were more severe because you were introduced what's called a mesopredator, which is the one below the apex predator, into that situation. So, you know, when humans meddle, good things do not happen. Chris, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Chris Pepin-Neff is a senior lecturer in public policy at the University of Sydney and author of the book Flaws, Shark Bites and Emotional Public Policymaking. That's it for this week's Pod Extra. Don't let Brooke's absence deter you. I think we got a nice show planned this week. See you on Friday.
I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.